Hello. Now, this may surprise you, but I'm English. Maybe you've noticed. And the English, it is said, have two conversational ticks. The first one is that we are always apologizing for everything. And the second is that we always talk about the weather. So can I just say, if you've ever had a nice day out in London ruined by the highly changeable English climate, I'm really, really sorry. Now, is this reputation that the English have actually accurate? Well, one recent survey finds that one in 10 Brits estimate that they say sorry 20 times a day. And it suggests that there are roughly 15 British sorries for every American apology. So quite possibly. In fact, Kate Fox, in her book, Watching the English even describes an experiment she conducted in which she deliberately bumped into hundreds of people on the street in towns and cities across England. Fox reports that 80% of her victims said sorry for the collision, despite the fact that it was clearly her fault. And when she did a comparison with data from other nations, she concluded that only the Japanese seem to have anything even approaching the English sorry reflex. So if you're hearing this today and you're Japanese, solidarity. I'm so, so sorry that you're so, so sorry. Now, we are currently in a three-part series called Thanks, Sorry, Please. Three little words that make a big difference in our relationship with God and in our relationships with one another. Three little words that describe three things that we do all the time, but also three things that we want to see in fresh perspective in the light of Jesus. Three habits of the heart that we want to grow in as his disciples. And I'm very sorry to tell you that today I'm here to tell you about sorry. Actually, I'm sort of sorry, not sorry. In fact, I'm excited to tell you about sorry because while in one sense, saying sorry is this everyday event that's been familiar to us ever since we were little children, you know, I say this because I did that and then this happens and we all move on. At the same time, if we really stop and think about it, the word sorry and the way it heals and changes relationships and situations in ways both big and small is one of the deepest mysteries of being human. I mean, how does saying sorry actually work? How can one little word alter the fabric of reality? In the way that it does. I'd go as far as to say that sorry is one of the most profound pointers in everyday human experience to the reality of God and his ways in our lives. Our God is a God of forgiveness, a God of being reconciled to one another, and a God of changed minds, hearts, and lives. And when we say sorry, even for something small, we, his creatures, reflect a little bit of God in the world. Sorry may be an everyday word, but it's also a miracle. And in the Bible, the word that we sometimes use here is the word repentance. It's a word that's at the heart of Jesus's proclamation of the kingdom. At the very start of Mark's gospel, 
we hear these words. Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. And notice in that kingdom announcement, it's not that the kingdom comes near because we repent, because we say sorry. It's because the kingdom has come near that we repent. God is the one who has made the first move here to set things right. Our move is to enter into what he has already done, to turn towards the God who has come near to us. And that means as well, turning away from sin. So sorry is far from just an everyday word. It is a gateway to great mysteries that are at the heart of our faith. And today we turn to the prayer of Psalm 32, in which we see a journey of repentance laid out for us. Let's read this together, Psalm 32. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Now, this is one of the seven sorry psalms in the Bible. Legend has it that in the fourth century, St. Augustine himself had them written out in large letters and hung around the room in which he lay on his deathbed. And you thought the English were apologetic. Now, this psalm doesn't really teach us how to say sorry. Instead, it teaches us to say sorry. It embraces repentance and the life and growth to which it leads, which it turns out is the harder of the two lessons to learn. When we were children, parents and teachers probably taught us all how to say sorry. You say it, you say what for, you say what you're going to do about it, you say how you're going to do things differently from now on and so forth. As a parent, I've done the same with my kids. I've taught them how to say sorry. But I've also been really aware that the other lesson, teaching them to say sorry, 
teaching them the habit of the heart that leads us to say sorry is something that I can only really teach them by modeling it, by example. For example, by letting my children overhear when I need to say sorry to my wife, Rachel, about something. And of course, as I'm sure you already know, I'm such a flawless husband and human being that the opportunities I have to model this are incredibly rare, like solar eclipse rare. So when it does happen, I have to be really intentional, you know, wait for the kids to come home from school and get them to gather around before saying my official apology, or maybe not. And also, I model it by uh, saying sorry to them, to my children. There are moments where I need to say sorry to them for my distraction or my impatience, an overreaction, or whatever it might be. And it's not easy, but it's how we learn, not just how to say sorry, but to say sorry. And that's what this psalm is doing as well. It models it. It lets us in on a journey of repentance. And it puts it in perspective of relationship with God and the difference that it makes. And what I want to draw out of this psalm today are three moves we make, three things we do in relation to God on this journey of saying sorry. The three moves are these, cover, uncover, and discover. Firstly then, in all sorts of ways, we human beings have a tendency to take cover or to cover up the things we have done wrong. That's why at the start of this psalm, we hear happy or blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, being honest with others about ourselves and being honest with ourselves about ourselves is a gift of God that will lead us to flourishing. I think we all know that unlike the sorry reflex of the English you'll find on the streets of London, this honesty is not automatic. And it's not just that. The psalm also tells us that even when we do see ourselves and what we have done clearly, secrecy or plain stubbornness can produce silence as our response. Either we don't want people to know, we're afraid of them knowing, or everybody already knows, but for a range of reasons, we, we just don't want to deal with it. We don't want to face it. That's why this psalm goes on to say these words, while I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. In other words, the result of that silence, whether through secrecy or stubbornness, is that what stands between us and God, as well as what stands between us and other people, continues to bother us, to weigh on us, to isolate and distract us. Not only does the silence not work, not solve anything, it even drains us and damages us. And it's these human evasive maneuvers that Psalm 32 labels covering. Psalm 32 calls them covering. 
In verse 5, we read, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And the words did not hide in the Hebrew here are literally did not cover. In that moment, the psalmist stops covering for himself. The psalmist ends the cover-up operation with God. And that's the first call for us too in this psalm, to stop covering. You know, as human beings, we are so creative in this department. Our ingenuity in the area of covering things up and not dealing with them almost knows no bounds. It's almost impressive. One way that we cover things up is to justify our actions. If you look at it from this angle, it's not so bad. Surely anyone else would have done the same in my place. Another is to shift the blame. This is not all on me. Look at what they've done. It's not my fault if dot, dot, dot. And one other is that familiar move of self-pity. Perhaps we dwell so much on the consequences of our actions and the mess that we've made that we never really get around to owning our own part in it or attempting to make things right. And even when we have already come to see things clearly, as the psalmist seems to have done at the beginning of Psalm 32, we can continue to cover in other ways. We sometimes cover by compensating you know, we try to cover something we've done by doing all sorts of other great things that we can pile on top of it. We give generously. We excel in what we do. We're driven. We set out to help others each and every day. And we also sometimes cover by disengaging as well. Maybe we pull back or we ghost the people involved, or we uh, cover sin and shame by getting a new set of friends, or through hobbies and activities, games and television, food and drink. You fill in the blanks, but we've all sorts of ways of covering things up. In fact, I'm tempted to remix the famous Liam Neeson speech from Taken here. When it comes to admitting that we're wrong and actually saying that we're sorry, we have a very particular set of skills, skills that we have acquired over a very long career, skills that make us a nightmare for people like you. And the covers that we use, they're not all bad in and of themselves, but they can sometimes keep us from stepping into the healing and the wholeness that God has for us. Perhaps some of us hearing this are living with guilt or a grudge or perhaps a secret that we are attempting to cover in various ways. If that's us, then God says two things to us through Psalm 32. Firstly, doesn't work. And secondly, you don't have to. There is another way. And here we come to the second move in this Psalm, uncover. Because the wonderful news of this psalm is that that which we uncover, God himself will step in to cover. Verse 1 says, happy is the one, blessed is the one whose sin is covered, not by themselves, but by God. 
And a second way in which these opening verses unpack the same idea is with the language of carrying, as in carrying a burden. When we read, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, the expression there is uh, whose transgression is carried. The image here is uh, one of us holding something that's too heavy for us to carry and God motioning to us, you give me that, I will carry it, I will bear it. Now these prayers, again, they usher us into the great mystery that is forgiveness, the great mystery of what it means to say sorry. As we come to him, God deals graciously with us. God deals with the record of what we have done and how it stands against us, and he covers it. God also enters into the burden of what we've done, and he takes it from us, the guilt and the pain of it, and how it robs us of all joy. And God also works in the impact of what we've done. He can turn things around, he can make a way, he can change us and heal us and transform situations. And so as Christians, we rejoice at these three things. We rejoice that all three are the gifts of God that he gives to us ultimately through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus, and through his spirit. And in this psalm, that wondrous journey into which we're invited starts when the cover stops. Though we know the road ahead may be a long one, we can uncover because we trust that God has us covered. And now you might be wondering, why does this psalm use the language of covering? Where does that language of covering come from? There are a few places in the Bible that it draws upon, but one is the story of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin in Genesis 3, which is a story that makes much the same point, but in a kind of vivid, imaginative form. Think about it. Where do Adam and Eve uh, go when they fall into sin? What are the first things that they do? Two things. First of all, Adam and Eve run for cover. They hide. And then secondly, they cover up. They make garments for themselves from fig leaves because they realize they are naked. And so you see, this act of covering is as old as sin itself. It's our basic response to guilt and shame. Because of what we've done, we hide from God and we cover ourselves. Maybe you're hearing this and you know that you've been undercover from God. That's another theme we find throughout the Psalms. Because of people's sin, they hide just like Adam and Eve. In Psalm 39, we hear the surprising prayer, turn your gaze away from me, God, that I may smile again. Because of that burden, the psalmist wants to hide. The first part of Psalm 139 is just the same. It's all about hiding from God, taking cover of darkness. And then the psalmist says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Adam and Eve did it. The psalmist did it. People throughout the Bible did it, and we do it too. We hide and we cover. We take cover and we cover up. But what does God do in that same story of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3? He does two things as well. First of all, he seeks them out 
and he asks them questions. He starts a conversation with them. He uncovers. And then secondly, in an action that promises the future restoration that will one day come in Jesus Christ, God replaces the coverings that they had made with coverings that he himself provides, animal skins for them to wear. As George Wenham puts it, the first is an attempt to cover oneself. The second is an accepting a covering from another. The first is man-made and the second is God-made. So the second move in this psalm, the second move this psalm makes is to take off the covers that we've piled up so that God may truly cover us and restore us. Sorry is a way of uncovering before God. How do we do that? How do we uncover? Well, the danger here is that we make this more complicated and more technical than it needs to be. And perhaps that's especially true in today's world where the high accountability culture, especially on social media, as well as the threat of being canceled, have led to a new industry in helping people say sorry in the right way with the right words online. If you Google how to say sorry or how to apologize, guides as to how to do this well on Instagram will appear on the front page. And we probably all see someone issuing an official apology online on a weekly basis. Now, sometimes there might be many levels of cover for us to work through as we come back into God's presence, as we speak our truth to him, as we say sorry. Sometimes there are processes of reconciliation or mediation that are important and transformative for us to submit to and undertake. But nothing can take the place of just bringing ourselves in an undefended way before our maker, dropping the cover. And again, another of our seven sorry psalms, Psalm 51, puts it like this. You have no delight in sacrifice, God. With a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. It's not a correctly offered sacrifice or a performance, but a broken and contrite heart that God is looking for. During World War II, the whole Jewish population of Warsaw in Poland, roughly 30% of the total population, were squeezed into a ghetto that covered roughly 2.4% of the city. It was called the Warsaw Ghetto. And during an uprising there in 1943, over 13,000 Jews were murdered by Nazi forces systematically destroying the entire area to quell the rebellion. After the war, in 1970, the German Chancellor, Willy Brandt, traveled to Warsaw in Poland to visit a new monument being dedicated to this terrible tragedy. It was a way of saying sorry. It was an act of reconciliation. It was a very important moment of public contrition on the part of a national leader. And so you can imagine that what was due to take place that day, it had been planned and scripted and choreographed down to the very last detail. But when Willy Brandt actually reached the monument 
something unexpected happened. As he placed the wreath at the monument and adjusted it slightly, he was spontaneously overcome by the magnitude of what had happened. And he simply fell to his knees. A few gasps could be heard. The cameras started fluttering and clicking like mad. The people in charge were standing uh, by the side. They had no idea what to do. And you know, it was a simple and unscripted gesture, but it made a profound difference to peace and reconciliation in Europe in that time. In fact, today, nearby the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial, there's now another monument marking the day that the German Chancellor took the knee in sorrow. It's a reminder to us all that uncovering is uncomplicated. God isn't asking us to perform or to do something technical. He just wants us to drop the cover, to acknowledge our sin like the psalmist does, to articulate things before him. And when we do, he will step towards us. James 4 reminds us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Maybe you're hearing this and you're feeling a nudge in that direction today to drop the cover. And that brings us to the final move that this psalm makes, discover. What do we discover when we uncover and when God covers? Well, what we discover above all is that God calls us to repentance in order to bring us to life. Having encountered the covering of God for his sin, the psalmist turns and says, therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. He's saying, let all people come to you. Everybody should come to you because of who you are, because you are merciful. And that's what we discover about all of our three little words in this series, about thanks and about sorry and about please. Gratitude, repentance, and petition are far more than just duties that we discharge towards God. They are realities into which we are invited. They are God-given ways into God's own presence and power. And God promises in this psalm that it will lead to fullness of life. That's why this psalm begins and ends not with sorrow, but with joy. Those whose transgressions are carried and covered by God aren't just relieved, they're overjoyed. And painful though facing the truth and speaking your truth can be, they do the very opposite of wasting away and groaning as they say sorry. That's what happens. That's what we discover as we pick up repentance as a daily habit of the heart. That's why during the very first sermon ever on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, repent therefore and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And then he says, and so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's what we discover. And notice as well that the call towards the end of the psalm is this one. It says, do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding whose temper must be curbed with a bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. God, in bringing us to the place of confession and repentance, in bringing us to the place of saying sorry to God and one another, he's not trying to 
force or strong arm us into fessing up and facing the consequences and then dragging us along behind him like an untamed animal. Instead, he's trying to build the kind of trust and familiarity with him that will lead us to go where he goes and to stay near to him. That's what sorry as a habit of the heart can do for us as well. We become more open to God and to one another, readier to follow Jesus and quicker to turn back when we don't. And then lastly, to live in this way before God is also transformative for how we live with one another. At the very center of the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus gave his disciples, we find these words, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And again, just like Psalm 32, the Lord's Prayer doesn't begin with groveling. It begins with joy, with this bold declaration that God is our Father and that we are the seekers of his kingdom. But along the way, this prayer also acknowledges that we will need to seek forgiveness for the things that we do and to extend that same forgiveness towards others both of which flow from the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. This habit of the heart towards God will make us quicker to turn back to one another when the moment comes. There's a wonderful story on Alpha of a man named Emmanuel, who was uh, part of the uh, forces involved in the Rwandan genocide. Let's take a little look at his story before we close. My name is Parti Emmanuel and I participated in the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. I murdered many Tutsi under the order of bad leadership and have spent six years in prison and four years in community service. While in prison, fellow prisoners invited me to try Alpha. I went, but struggled to engage. I realized I needed to tell the truth about what I had done and wrote a letter asking for forgiveness of the relatives of those I had murdered. Life was so hard after being released from prison. I found my wife with two children that were not mine and I faced many heartbreaking situations. I didn't know how I was going to live with the genocide survivors after what I had done. My heart was filled with agony, loneliness and fear. Encouraged by Alpha in prison, I decided to do Alpha again. I learned that Jesus forgives and experienced love in a way I had never known before. With the help of a local pastor, I went to find Vincent, whose mother and grandmother I had killed, to ask for forgiveness. I now live in a village built for genocide survivors and perpetrators. Vincent lives in the same village. We have formed a friendship, and I now experience peace like I haven't experienced it before. 
day-to-day life continues to be a challenge, but I have found forgiveness and healing for the things that I have done. God questions about life, try Alpha. It's an amazing testimony, and it reminds us that ultimately what we discover here is a reality of grace that has been brought into being by the coming of Jesus. Long after this prayer of uncovering and covering was penned, and even longer after the story of Adam and Eve covering and being covered was penned, Jesus came and placed repentance at the heart of his message about the kingdom. Not because what God wants most is our contrition, but because our sin being covered is part of the journey of discovery, of relationship with God, and what human life is really all about. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Amen. Let's take a moment now just to wait on what God wants to say to us and do in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. You might want to place your hands in front of you as a gesture of openness to him as we make the prayer of Psalm 32 our own. Come, Holy Spirit. Blessed is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to come near and to bear witness with our spirit to the truth of who we are, your adopted children, but also to lay a finger on the ways in which we take cover from you and the growth that you want to give us. Another thing some of us might like to do in this moment is just to say some very simple sorries, just to call to mind the things that we've done and to turn towards God and therefore to turn away from our sin.
And God, we thank you that the great mystery of forgiveness and grace is something that flows right from your heart and from the finished work of your son, Jesus, into our hearts, but also into the whole world. We pray, would you help us to live in your kingdom as receivers and sharers of your reconciliation. Amen. Amen. Let's worship together.